Right, the uh, <coughs> the dreaded chapter three. Although, if anyone's dreading chapter three, when you get home tonight, just read chapter four. <laughs> we're doing that next time. <laughs> um, let's 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 just recap um, what we've done so far. The brief that James has set himself in this letter is that he's saying to people. I mean, he's assuming they're Christians, right? And what he's saying is he's saying, this, this faith that you say you have, um, this ongoing discipleship, this in-fellowship-with-God-now faith, all right? So it's that kind of faith whereby, moment by moment, you are claiming not just to be a Christian, but a disciple. He says that faith he says, show me that by it being worked out in your life. That is the burden of James. He says, show that faith in how you live. Show that faith in what you do. Show that faith in the kind of person you are, rather than simply having all the right words. And he's saying, You've got to do it in two ways. It boils down to two basic things. You want to know if you're a disciple? Well, here are the two ways you're going to find out. This is what James is saying. He says you're going to find out firstly by self-sacrificial giving and service to those in need. That's the first thing that we've seen. The widows and the orphans. That's what true religion boils down to. And then he says secondly, by abstaining from worldliness and of course we're seeing through this letter just what worldliness or carnality to use the phraseology that Paul uses James talks about being worldly James uh, Paul talks about being carnal it's it's the same thing uh, you know we're we're seeing just what this worldliness is that we're to to make sure we don't get polluted with and uh, so that's what James is going on about. He's not concerned with justification. He's not concerned with, you know, sort of like, have you believed on Jesus and therefore you're going to heaven? He's not concerned with that. The faith that he's talking about is all to do with sanctification, being set free from the power of sin. And of course he's saying the real test, it's not going to be things like miracles, it's not going to be things like preaching the gospel, however good those things are. But the real test is how we live our day-to-day -day Christian lives. Um, if you just, just go actually to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and, and just see something Paul says, um, very much the same thing, because obviously there's complete agreement between all the biblical writers. But if you just find 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, in verse 20, and, uh, well, no, we'll... We'll start from verse 18. Uh, you know, Paul was very aware that the, the Corinthians were being influenced by other Christians and so-called leaders who were all very showy on the outside. And, uh, and he says, some are arrogant, as though I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. And 
that is fundamentally what James is talking about, the power of a changed life. That is what going on with the Lord is all about. It's not about not sinning, it's about being dealt with in an ongoing way so that when we do sin, we put it right, okay? But the point is, his burden is, right, I'm writing to all you people, you're saved, I know you are, the burden of this letter is, if you're saved, then act saved, all right? And, uh, and a lot of this, what James is say saying, boils down, as we're going to really start seeing in this chapter now, to the tongue. And we're going to see how much of our sanctification, how much of our going on with the Lord is, is, is dependent on, on this whole area of, um, of, of the tongue. And, and James is by and large concerned with two areas here in regards to the tongue. Firstly, uh, using the tongue to say the right things without living those right things out. So we've already seen that. He's saying, you know, it's all very well you know, sort of saying, oh, I'm following the Lord and, you know, I've got faith, blah, blah, blah. He says, what, you've got faith? Right, show me your faith then. You know, by all the things that we're seeing in this letter. Show me your faith by serving your brother. Show me your faith by giving. Show me your faith by a holy life, you see. So that's the first area. He's concerned that the tongue isn't being used to misrepresent ourselves. You know, to sort of make out, oh, you know, we are following the Lord to a degree that we're actually not. Now, obviously, we're not saying that it's wrong at any point to say, I am following the Lord. That's perfectly right, if you are. That's the point. But isn't it easy to, as we've seen, have all the right words, but the actions aren't there. But the second thing, uh, as we're going to be seeing, is the area of using the tongue simply to say downright wrong things. You know, like sin, pure and simple, through the tongue. And, uh, and it's, it's this latter one now, in chapter 3, that James moves on to, uh, you know, sort of directly, this, this thing that, you know, we've seen, yeah, the tongue can misrepresent ourselves, we can talk but not do, and that's wrong, but, but now he, he moves on to the whole area, you know, sort of like where the tongue can just directly, uh, you know, be behaving in a, a very bad way. I think probably what we'll do is, is I'll read the chapter in its entirety, and then we'll we'll come to it verse, verse by verse. So it would help if I actually had a James 3 open and not 1 Corinthians 3, wouldn't it? I'm glad I spotted that. Right, okay. Right, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. For we all make many mistakes, and if anyone makes no mistakes in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body also. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships also. So, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is an unrighteous world among our members. Here, members is talking, you know, melos, it's, it's arms and legs, it's, it's the parts of your body. Um, straining the whole body, staining the whole body, rather. Setting, 
strain, <laughs> staining the whole body, setting on fire the cycle of nature and set on fire by hell, although for that hell read Gehenna, that's what it actually should be. Um, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. A restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh water and brackish? That sort of water that's off. Can a fig tree, my brethren, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom is not as such. This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. <clears throat> and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right, okay, well he starts off by, you know, sort of saying, don't let many of you become teachers. Um, you know, because he says that we who are teachers should be judged with greater strictness. Now, can you see teaching requires verbalization? So immediately we can see here the context is talk, because a teacher talks. If you've got a leader of the church and they're teaching, then the point is they are talking. So, so we see here immediately the context is, is, is talk, it's the tongue. And I don't think he's just talking about Bible teachers here. Uh, he's talking about elders in general, because we saw in the Church Life series that all elders have to be apt to teach. Uh, okay, you get elders who are specifically Bible teachers, as it were, but all elders are to be apt to teach. And uh, in, in this little, you know, sort of word trying to discourage people from becoming elders, uh, he's not trying to guard the position for, for some elite. He's not, you know, trying to keep it for, you know, the select few. Um, he's, he's simply saying, just, just be aware of what you're taking on. Um, if you're going to become an elder, be careful what you're actually taking on. If you just go over to 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, um, and there, well, just to, Paul says, the, the saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office, office of bishop, and of course bishop is one of the, you know, bishop, elder, pastor, bishop, better translated overseer, but it's one of the words used for an elder. Uh, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. So the point is that 
it's not wrong to desire to be an elder, all right? But what James is, is saying here, he says, just realize what you're taking on because it's vitally important that motives are pure. Uh, because the point is that, uh, you know, sort of, if you're going to be in leadership, you're going to be judged with a greater strictness. So he's just saying, you know, don't, don't be too quick to want to, you know, to teach. Because if you do, if your tongue is being used to lead God's people, then, then God is going to hold you a bit more accountable to himself than if you weren't actually doing that. And so the motives have got to be right, you know, that someone has got to be wanting to be in that position because God is calling them to it and because they really want to serve the Lord and the body. And, uh, and of course the thing is that there are many in the churches today, they end, end up in leadership simply because they've got the gift of the gab. And, uh, you know, of course that isn't enough. It, it's very common in churches if you go around that when you sort of, you know, see the leadership, I mean, they might be churches with a priest or a minister or something, but then they'll have like, you know, what they call a lay leadership thing or elders or something like that under, you know, sort of like the big white chief. But you'll find that in situations like that, it's usually the bank manager, you know, it's usually the solicitors, it's usually the, the, the successful people in the world's eyes who end up in that position. And, uh, you know, normally because they've got the gift of the gab. Now, I'm not saying that bank managers and the like, you know, can't be used by God to lead. They can. But it's very easy just for people to end up in leadership just because they can talk. And it's very important to realise that, you know, to leave the church is, uh, you know, a lot more than having the gift of the gab. In fact, you don't even need the gift of the gab to be an elder. I mean, it's no use being someone who can't say two words to people, you know, but you don't have to be a great, a great talker. So here James is just saying, look, you know, bear in mind, you know, don't be too hurry, you know, to, you know, to be saying, oh, Lord, raise me up into leadership. And then in verse 2, he talks about making mistakes and, uh, you know, and he's, he's talking about, you know, the weakness and the sinfulness and the imperfection of even the most mature Christian. You know, even people in leadership, no one has arrived. But the point is that even in regards to slip-ups, someone who's leading will probably be dealt with, you know, maybe quite definitely uh, in regards to certain things that if they weren't a leader, the Lord would just let it, as it were, go by. And, you know, I can certainly, you know, say that from experience. There, there are things, you know, sort of like even in the area of slip-ups that you won't, God will not let you get away with them if you're in leadership. If you weren't in leadership, it wouldn't matter that much, all right? You know, but if you are leading, then, uh, I mean, the point is that, that what God might turn a blind eye to in others, he's certainly not going to turn a blind eye to in you. And so James just starts off this, this bit by, you know, saying, look, it's, it's good to become a leader, but bear in mind that if your tongue is going to be used to lead God's people, then be very aware that you are going to be judged in a greater strictness that you know god is going to hold the tongue of a leader to account uh, very much more than a non-leader anyway th then he goes on and he starts talking about putting bits into the mouths of horses um and then he he talks about ships and rudders and uh, we've got to look carefully at his argument here because 
he's saying that if you get a bit, all right, you, you got a horse, and to control that horse, you put the bit in its mouth, okay? And what he's saying is that through the bit, that horse can now be controlled, all right? So the point is you might have a horse and it's wild and it won't do what you say, but if you train that horse and if you get the bit in its mouth, there's only a small bit, but it goes in its mouth, and then you can control that horse. And can you see that what he's saying there, the picture there, is he says, get a horse's mouth and you've got the horse. See, a bit. Get the mouth of a horse and you've got the horse itself. And of course, what we're going to see is that the principle here is that if God gets a believer's mouth under control, he's got the believer under control. That's the idea. What we're going to be seeing is that so much rests on the tongue. So the thing about horses, you can control a whole horse, this big whacking horse, just by putting a bit in its mouth. Get the horse's mouth, you've got the horse. Get a believer's tongue, you've got the believer. And then he goes on and he talks about ships. You know, ships that are so great and they're driven by strong winds, all these great powers that act on them. But he says, guiding them, deciding where the ship ends up going, he says, ultimately, that is all down to the rudder. And the main point about the rudder of a ship is that what he's saying is that the, the, the rudder has a completely disproportionate effect on the vessel for its size. I.e. you've got a ship that is massive, absolutely massive, and yet the main factor in the guidance of that ship is the rudder, which is tiny compared to the size of the ship. And yet tiny though it may be, its effect on the vessel is completely disproportionate. It might be one of the smallest parts of the ship, but it's also one of the most important. The entire ship is totally dependent on what the little rudder is doing at any one time, because it's the little rudder that sets the direction of the ship. And the pilot, who obviously wants the ship to go where he wants to go, can only do it through the rudder. There is no other way to do it. It's the rudder, tiny though it is, that steers the ship. And also, all the external power, the waves on a ship as well, they affect it. But nevertheless, the rudder overcomes the power of the wind and the waves. Because the wind, and, you know, the wind may be blowing the ship easterly, but you've got the rubber, the rubber, the rudder, so you can sail west. You've got complete control over the ship, all right, even though the rudder is so tiny, all right. So then, that's the picture. If the rudder is under the control of the pilot, the ship is under the control of the rudder. So it's tiny, but the rudder is in control. And uh, if, if you go to, to 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and we'll just see um, a, a place where, where Paul, um, you know, also uses this, this picture of a, a ship for the Christian life. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, we'll start reading from verse 18. Uh, this is in regards to Hymenaeus and Alexander. But he says, This charge I, com I commit to you 
in accordance with the prophetic utterances which pointed to you, that inspired by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. Now there's Paul using the picture of a believer, all right, and, you know, sort of like they are a ship, and yet they've ended up shipwrecked. Now, ultimately, if a ship ends up shipwrecked, it's because the rudder steered it somewhere it shouldn't have gone, onto the rocks. And there's a warning there, because, you know, sort of like all of us have it within our power to shipwreck our faith. All right? We don't have it within our power to ever be lost, but we do have it within our power to muck the whole thing up and to make shipwreck of our faith. And a boat that has been shipwrecked, it's ultimately that tiny little rudder that steered it to its, its doom, as it were. And that's a really frightening picture. And then in, in verse 5, he, he, he goes on to say, So the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. And there you have it. He says, in the same way that that tiny rudder can decide where a big ship goes, in exactly the same way, our tongue, one of the smallest parts of our body, nevertheless has a disproportionate effect on us. It's like the rudder of a big ship. Our tongue can literally be the guiding influence of our whole character. Our tongue can be the difference between whether we grow in the Lord or whether we don't all the time what we're doing with our tongue. And uh, he, he, he talks here about the tongue, though it's so little, it boasts of great things. Now, I think that means two things. I mean, firstly, it's just talking about straight boasting, the way our tongues build ourselves up, don't we? You know, I mean, sort of boast, you know, look at me, aren't I great? That kind of thing. But I think he means something else as well. When it talks about the tongue boasts of great things, I think it's back to do with the fact that the tongue has such a major role. Uh, role. I mean, he goes on to say how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. So here you've got a tiny fire and yet a whole forest. I mean, in, um, in Australia over the winter, which is of course their summer, they had these incredible bushfires, didn't they, all around Sydney. So you can have a tiny little fire and it can destroy thousands of square miles a forest. Now that is a tiny little fire boasting of great things. You see what I mean? Because it's small, but the power it has is incredible. And that is the truth about our tongues. They're small, but my goodness, what we say is so powerful one way or the other. The tongue, tiny though it is, boasts great things. Its capacity to affect our whole lives and the lives of other people is absolutely amazing. And then in verse 6 he goes on, I mean he's established not only that the tongue can have an incredibly disproportionate effect for its size, alright, now he goes on and he says the tongue is a fire. Now in the Bible fire very often represents the righteousness and the holiness of God. I mean, you'll find fire in the Bible symbolic of that, and fire can be a good thing. 
um, you know, sort of fire can cleanse and purify, keep you warm in the winter, can be a good thing. But here, as we're going to see, we're not referring here to any good effect of fire at all. We're not here seeing fire used as a picture of the holiness of God. In fact, quite the reverse. Uh, because he goes on to say about that our, our tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. And of course the reason that he's using the idea of fire here is the almost limitless potential for total destruction that the tongue has. That's the point. If you set fire to a forest, uh, when we were, when I was younger with a, a certain friend of mine many years ago, one little game we came up with, there was an area of brushland down by the river that we used to walk past every day going home from school. And uh, one, one game we came up with in the summer was that someone would get a, a sort of like 60 seconds start with a cigarette lighter. They'd run around lighting little tufts of fire, um, you know, the grass, and then the other person would have to come and put all the fires out. Uh, it, it, it was quite a dangerous game, only once it got out of control. But just playing a stupid little game like that when we were kids, you can see the potential of that one little fire could have destroyed acres of that scrubland. And that's the point here, a tiny fire can destroy a whole forest. And the point is, what James is going on to say here, is that the destructive power of our tongues is virtually straight from the devil itself, himself. He talks about it being an unrighteous world, staining the whole body, setting on fire the cycle of nature. Let's, let's just have a look at those a bit more. It's an unrighteous world. Unrighteous, we know what that means. The word world here is the same Greek word as for the universe. That's how big, you know. I mean, I suppose one could say you can have unrighteousness in a little way and then you can have unrighteousness in a big way. Well, the tongue is unrighteousness in a big way because it's like a fire. You know, that, 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 little, that little morsel of poison about someone. And suddenly a rumour, it's shot halfway round the world before truth has got its boots on, as Spurgeon used to say. And suddenly, someone's reputation is gone. See? A fire spreading. Talks about staining the whole body. It's the idea, it's a tiny part of us, but it will stain our whole lives. Because that's the corrupting influence that it has. It's like ink, you know, you can't, you can't get away with it. You know, once something has been said, you can repent of it, you can apologise, but you can do all that, and that's right, and God's grace will cover it, but you can never actually undo the damage that the tongue has done. So it, 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 it stains us, you know, like an ink stain. You know, you can't get it out. I mean, this new personal power they've just launched claims to. But by and large, you, you can't get ink out. And so that's, that's what James is, is saying here. And it's all down to what we say, the way our sinful natures come out in what we say. And then he says, setting on fire the cycle of nature, which is a bit of an odd phrase. We'll break that down. Nature, first of all, nature. That Greek word is genesis. And uh, in the Greek, it means that the course of birth 
and creation. Uh, like the sphere of earthly life, all right? Everything that is contained in our existence. So you've got the, the whole kind of thing there, every aspect of life. And then cycle, because it talks about setting on fire the whole cycle of nature. Uh, the Greek word there is trochos, which is the word for a wheel. Hence, you get a bicycle or a cycle. It comes from, you know, the cycle of nature. And th there's the picture here of a wheel going around. Because, of course, a cycle is a chain of events, all right? Uh, and, and sort of like, it, it, sets, it sets things off. You know, one bad word causes a reaction in someone else that bounces back to someone else and then it bounces. You get a chain reaction. It goes round and round and round. It goes on and on and on. And of course, in the world of humankind, all the time, the sinful nature through the tongue is just having this chain reaction effect of sin increasing all over the place. And of course, the point is that if you set fire to the axle of a wheel and then send that wheel off down a hill, it's going to, the fire is going to spread from the wheel to all the land it's rolling over. Can you see? It's like a picture, one of the things they used to do in cowboy films, didn't they? If they want to, you know, sort of like, you know, blow up the Indians or something, they, they get a wagon and put all the dynamite on it and they set fire to the wagon and, and roll it down the hill. And of course this wagon was setting everything on fire that it touched and eventually it blew up. And that's the kind of picture that, that James is talking about here. You know, this setting on, on fire, the cycle of nature. What he's saying, it's like a wheel that is on fire. And this wheel is travelling and it's moving along and the fire is spreading to everything it touches. Because that is the effect that the tongue has. And uh, the, the whole round of human life and activity is corrupted, it is tainted, it is destroyed by the fire-like effect of the tongue. I mean, think about it, every war that there's ever been in human history started because somebody said something. Every fight there's ever been is because somebody said something. All the destruction, all the murder, all the hatred, you know, the whole wretched thing that we see in the world today, virtually all of it begins because somebody says something. And, uh, you know, and, and, and James makes no doubt, you know, no bones about it, that this fire that the tongue is full of, it comes from Gehenna itself. And, uh, you know, it's set on fire by the lake of fire. And, of course, the idea that he's getting across there, the lake of fire was prepared for who? For Satan. And it's a picture there of, of the utter godlessness of the human heart, our similarity to Satan, because of course we saw this in the demonology series, didn't we? That the sinful human nature, this is why it's so daft to, you know, when you see sin, to always want to say there's a demon behind it. You know, a human being does not need an evil spirit to help them do evil. We all know that. We are intrinsically evil ourselves as Satan and the evil spirits are. And so here, what he's saying is that, this, that the very evil of Satan himself is being spread every time we open our mouths and let the, the sinful nature out. And then in, in verse 7 he goes on, he says, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. He's saying, look, 
if you look around at nature, all the animals in God's creation, they can all be tamed. All right, you can overcome them. But the thing is that he's saying here is but no one can tame the tongue. No human being has it within them to get the tongue under control, to stop that fire that comes out from the tongue. Obviously, the Lord can, and that's why if you get the tongue, you get the Christian. But the point is, so powerful is the evil, the potential of the tongue, that uh, no one has ever been able to tame it. And, uh, you know, we saw horses with bits in their mouths. You can tame a horse, but you cannot tame the tongue. And then he, he goes on now to describe it even more. And remember, what he's describing, this is us. This is us in our natural state. He says it's a, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now this word restless, akatastatos, alright? Uh, it's, it's from the verb that means to set in order. Now, because it starts with an A, in the Greek, if you've got the A on the beginning of the word, it's a negative. So it makes the word mean the opposite. All right? And it literally means here, the verb is to set in order, it's got the A in front of it, it literally means out of order. All right? The tongue is restless, it is completely out of order. It is under no authority, that's the idea. It's a loose cannon, it's rogue, it's unstable, it's completely disorderly, because at any one moment it goes only by its own short-term whims. That's why it's out of order, it's restless, all right. Just waiting to go into action. And don't we know that of our tongues? They're, they're just waiting to go into action, aren't they? Restless. And uh, then he, he, he says that it's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And of course, the thing about poison is that it gets on the inside, doesn't it, and destroys. I mean, if a snake bites you or if a poisonous spider bites you, the thing about, or, or if you drink poison, the poison gets inside of you and it does its damage from the inside out. Now, the point is, how often have we, our words, what we have said, has injected poison into somebody else? It might be something we said to degrade and hurt them. And so that hurt went on the inside of them. We hurt them, and the poison worked like that. Or it might be that there was somebody we had it in for, you know, we're person A, and we don't like person C. And so we start spreading rumours about person C to person B. And then, before we know it, person B is hating person C as much as we are, but person B doesn't know anything about person C. But now they're eaten up with the poison of our hatred, because we've injected it into them with our tongue. So whether it's saying something to hurt someone, demolish them, humiliate them, that is like putting poison inside of them because it hurts. We're supposed to build one another up in love, aren't we? But instead we can use words to destroy, that's like putting poison. Or we can use our tongue and I can get you acting sinfully towards other people by what I say. And there you were, minding your own business, not committing a particular sin, I come along with my tongue, tasty morsel, few rumours, you know, sort of like, you know, chance to, you know, to get you running that person down with me because then that makes me look bigger, and bang, my poison has gone inside of you. You see, that's the thing about the tongue. 
and uh, you know, sort of like, basically it kills you spiritually, because poison does ultimately kill. Uh, if we actually go to Matthew 15, and uh, just, just see what, what, what Jesus said very directly on this subject, Matthew chapter 15, and if you find verse 10, And um, Jesus called the people to him and said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Bit unloving that, uh, you know, because I mean the disciples saying, Jesus, you upset the Pharisees with your teaching. But, I mean, sort of Jesus should really have gone and apologised, shouldn't he? I mean, if he really loved them. Well, this is what I read in Christian books at any rate. But what Jesus said, he said, no, leave them alone. They're, they're offended because they're blind and they won't see and leave them alone, or they'll just lead you into their blindness as well. So that was, you know, just chuck that in free there. He said, but, Pe but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, stomach and so passes on? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. And of course, ultimately, what Jesus is saying there is that what is in your heart is going to come out through your mouth. And you, there's nothing you can do to prevent that. I mean, you know, short of cutting your tongue out and becoming dumb then the evil will still be in your heart. But what Jesus is saying, that assuming your tongue is working and you can talk, what's in our hearts will come out through our mouths. It's as simple as that. Your tongue is where your heart comes out into the open. So, if you want to know my heart, uh, listen to what I say. Obviously, over a long period of time, I mean, you can't, well, I suppose I could be sitting here slagging someone off, wouldn't I? And then you say, oh, his heart's coming out into the open there. But I mean, you know, most of us, we've got a pretty good front on, but it's over a period of time. You'll find out what someone's heart is like based on what their speech is like, as it were. You know, whatever is in there is going to come out through the mouth. And here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And this is why James is writing the letter. At this point, in effect, he's saying, well, which nature is coming out, lads? Is it the new one or the old one? Because whichever nature you're living in, it's going to come out through your mouth. And he's saying that is precisely the point, all right, because he goes on later on, doesn't he, um, in verse 11 and 12, you know, he says, that, does a spring pour out fresh water and rotten water, uh, or does a, a, a fig tree yield olives, etc., etc.? But of course, the thing is, we've got two natures inside of us. And he said, for heaven's sake, it's supposed to be the new nature that's coming out, not the old. Uh, anyway, 
back to verse 9 and, and 10, he talks about with it, still, he's still describing the tongue here, he's making sure that they've really, really got, got the idea of it, that they really do understand this, and, and we've got to make sure that we do as well. He says, look, with the tongue we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. Now I think that means two things. This thing about that with it we bless the Lord and also we curse men. I think it means, you know, just straight that there are some times when we're blessing God and there are other times when we're cursing men. I mean, one can be blissfully blessing the Lord in the Spirit in worship, can't you, one day, and then being horrible to your wife or your husband the next. I mean, that, you know, the, the tongue that has blessed the Father has then cursed a man or a woman, all right, made in the likeness of God. It means that. But I think it means something else as well. I think it means the hypocrisy of pretending to be right with God, blessing God, whilst at the same time you're not right with your fellow man. See? With your tongue cursing your fellow man. You see? Like, you know, sort of like, claiming to be in fellowship with God and blessing him, whilst at the same time there's someone you're resenting and making that obvious. You see, that would be an example of the hypocrisy of blessing God and yet cursing man. And of course, the point is that, that he says, look, this should not be so. That, that shouldn't be how it is with us. Um, it's up to us. You know, if we surrender our tongues to the Lord, he can tame our tongues. We can't, but he can. You know, if we really, you know, I mean, David prayed in one of the Psalms, Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Um, and the Lord can do that. He can do that. I'm not saying it's easy. It takes a lot of bashing. And, uh, but, yeah, he can do that. And we really need to offer up our tongues and say, Lord, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, deal with my tongue. But also, in this thing about, you know, sort of like, you know, blessing God and cursing man. You see, the point is, if you curse men and I mean what that is saying you know sort of like you know it means wanting destruction for people obviously it could be anything from uh, you know sort of like laying into somebody and saying oh I wish you were dead or something like that you know there's a blatant cursing them and or whatever but in your heart to be desiring something nasty for somebody oh Lord why don't they get run over or something you know just desiring it in your heart that is cursing them as well it's wanting wrong for them. Remember, if, if, if God blesses, he does good things for you. So to curse men is when you want bad things for them, okay? Um, and of course the point is that because men and women are made in the image of God, if you're cursing them, well you're cursing the image of God in them. So to bless God at the same time as cursing a man or a woman or a child is, the whole idea is a contradiction. You know, because you're blessing God, but if you curse what God has made, then you're actually cursing God himself. And, and that's, that's an important thing to realise, you know, to, to kind of, you know, to be, well, as we know, to be wrong with other people is to be equally out of fellowship with God himself. Right, so uh, that's on verse 11 or 12 where he just, you know, goes over again about the water does a spring pour forth fresh and, and brackish. And, you know, I mean, again there he's saying, oh, there, there goes Gary sending the chess set flying. There wasn't a game in progress on there, was there? It's just as well. Yeah, that here he's saying, well, look, 
it's over, you know, it's over to you. What's it going to be? Figs, olives, fresh water or brackish? It's up to you. What's it going to be? Salt water or fresh water? Is it going to be the Lord in you or is it going to be your own sinful nature? Because ultimately, that choice is up to us. What's in my heart will come out through my mouth. But it's up to me what's in my heart. And, and, and if I'm really in surrender to the Lord, then he can overcome the tongue. And he can keep us in fellowship with him. It's completely up to us, isn't it, at any one moment. And, and having done that, he, he now goes on to, um, you know, to give them some tests, you know, to see, right, okay, here's a good way to find out if you are in fellowship. Because he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Because it's good to know, isn't it? You know, well, you know, who are disciples, Lord? Am I, firstly, or other people? It's good to know, isn't it? So he says, who is wise and understanding among you? I, who is going on with the Lord? He says, right, I'll tell you, here's a test. Anyone who's going on with the Lord, by his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right? So, people going on with the Lord, they're going to be showing their good life, which equals works done in the meekness of wisdom. So, we've got a kind of um, a mathematical formula here, haven't we? Um, we're given here a test, people claiming to be disciples, and so he says, here's a test that you can apply, do it first of all to yourself, apply the test to find out whether we're talking discipleship or whether you're a worldly Christian, as James pinpointed earlier, said don't be, or Paul's phrase, carnal. So, here's a test. Am I a worldly or carnal Christian, or am I like a disciple, okay. Well, if I'm a disciple, the equation will fit. Good life equals works plus meekness of wisdom. Now then, what is meekness of wisdom? Obvious what works are, but what is meekness of wisdom? In the Bible, when you get this word meekness, in the Greek, the idea of it is not weakness. Um, you know, you've got the old thing that, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. If that's okay with the rest of you. And, and you know, sort of when we talk about someone in, in English being meek, you get the idea of someone who just lies down and rolls over and, and you walk over them, you know, like namby-pamby. Um, John Major? You know, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, but that isn't what it means in the Greek at all. It doesn't imply weakness. Meekness in the Greek implies controlled strength. That's the idea of it, controlled strength. It's the idea of someone who has the strength to fight, but doesn't because they haven't got a fight in their heart. So meekness, all right, is someone who has no fight on with either God or man. They could have, they could have, but they don't. It's not because they're incapable of it. But it's simply because they don't have a fight with God, because they're right with him. They don't have a fight with anyone else, because they're right with them. Other people might not be right with them. They might be fighting you for all they're worth, but you're not fighting them. You haven't got a fight on. All right. And the reason that this meekness doesn't have a fight on with God and doesn't have a fight on with anyone else is because of the understanding and insight 
into one's own nothingness and unworthiness before the Lord. Because, yeah, I mean, the point is that when you realise your true condition before the Lord, well, then you realise utterly how right and proper it is that we're in submission to him. How dare we fight him? How, how dare we fight other people? You know, and so the meekness of wisdom is, is, is this kind of submission to the Lord, having a fight with neither him nor other people. It's concern for the Lord and others with concern for self down the list of priorities. That's, that's what the meekness of wisdom is all about. And of course, the works here, because yeah, you've got good life equals works plus meekness of wisdom, the works obvious practical service to other people, you know, the, the kind of stuff that James has been talking about. You see your brother in need? Well, don't just tell him you'll pray for him if you can meet his need as well. So there's the practical outworking of the Christian life. So we've got a formula. A good life equals works plus the meekness of wisdom. All right. That will be someone who's growing in the Lord. That that is the story of their life. It doesn't mean that there are no slip-ups, anything like that, but it means that by and large, over a period of time, you'll see them growing more and more into that. So, what's the opposite then? What's the carnal believer? Well, the opposite is a bad life. But what's the opposite of works and the meekness of wisdom? The opposite of that is mere talk and self-assertive folly. You see, because meekness puts self last, and it gets on with practical serving. But the bad life of the carnal Christian equals mere talk. No works, just talk. Plus self-assertive folly. Because the carnal Christian is, is obviously self. Self, self, self. All under the guise of Christianity, but it's all self, self, self. Disguised as, oh, I'm a disciple, I'm a disciple. So. There's the test. And in verse, you know, verse 14, Paul, uh, James opens this up more. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So here, here's something else that is a, a, a real sign of, of carnal, you know, the sort of Christians, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And you see, with both of them, whether it's jealousy or selfish ambition, it's self, 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 self. Not the Lord, not others, self. That is always the, the mark of the carnal Christian. Jealousy here, what is it? It's jealousy for others, what they've got that you haven't. Well, it's self, isn't it? You've got a nicer car than me? Well, if I'm going to be jealous of that, who am I thinking about? Me. Me. If I was thinking about you, I'd be pleased for you that you've got a nicer car than me. But if I'm jealous of if you've got a nicer car than me, okay, that's self, isn't it? It's as simple as that. Um, selfish ambition. Well, that's what I want, isn't it? I want to be the big chiefs. That's selfish ambition. I want, I want to be the final voice that speaks. It's all that kind of thing. The, this is all the complete opposite of discipleship. So what he's saying is he says, look, by your good life, show us your works and your meekness of wisdom. The opposite of that is talk plus self-assertive folly. And he says, you will always find that there's bitter jealousy there. I mean, bitterness in people's hearts, jealousy, selfish ambition um, is there. And, you know, sort of, and he says, if it is, he says, 
don't boast and be false to the truth. He says, look, if that stuff is in your hearts, then he says, don't try and pretend to be right with God, because you're not. He says, don't boast, because it's untrue, I'm right with God. He says, no, it's not. If you've got that in your heart, you're not right with God. And he says, don't be false to the truth, because if you say I'm right with God with that in your heart, you're not right with God, it's not true. So he says, look, if that is in your heart, he says, forget about I'm following the Lord. He says, just put it right. That's the point. Be honest. Be honest. It doesn't mean you can't put it right and then start following the Lord properly. But the point is, as long as that's in there, you're not following the Lord properly. That's what he's saying. And to claim that you are is, is, is daft. Okay, it's absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, when that stuff is in there, then, I mean, again, our talk about discipleship, it's the mere words that James is saying, look, don't, don't let it be mere words. Show it to me, act it out in your life. And uh, then in, in verse 15, he says, This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, when he's talking about this wisdom here, he's talking about understanding and insight. Again, you've got to say, is someone really following the Lord, or are they just carnal? And he says, well, what is their understanding? What is their outlook? All right. And he says that if they've got bitter ambition and, you know, selfish and all that kind of thing, then, I mean, the point is that, that that understanding that they've got of self first, because that's what it is, um, you know, or for instance, somebody, you know, who was sort of like excusing sin on the basis of, friends, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. You know, oh, I can carry on sinning, it doesn't matter, and then they try and use the Bible you know, to back that up. Well, that's their understanding, isn't it? That's their wisdom. But he says that wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's as simple as that. That wisdom is godless. It's got nothing to do with the law whatsoever. It is pure, sinful nature. Just like the world, just like the devil. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Okay. And then he, he goes back to the jealousy and the selfish ambition. He says, look, where those things are, there will be disorder and every vile practice. All right? So he gives us another equation there. Jealousy and selfish ambition equals troublemaking and infighting. I mean, we've seen this in the past, haven't we? We've seen exactly what it does. But that potential, obviously, all the time is there in each of our lives. And, uh, you know, so he's saying, look, for heaven's sake, if that's in your heart, this is what it's going to lead to. There's going to be disorder and there's going to be every vile practice. Because the point is, if you're fighting to get to the top, or if you've, got, if you've got a problem, if you're resentful against somebody, ultimately you'll do whatever you need to do to satisfy those desires you've got. So, I mean, you'll lie, you'll cheat, you'll, you know, you'll do anything. That's the point. It just gets out of control, like a snowball going down the hill. So, you know, he says, look, there's, there's the test. You know, so, you know, we all need to have a little look inside. And he said, if that's our understanding, if that's our wisdom, if that's what's in there, and we're not putting it right, then he says, you can't put yourself in the category of someone who has ongoing faith. Obviously, if that's true of you, you can start putting it right and then become a disciple and, and start having the faith that is ongoing. But he says, if this is the general truth about you, forget it. It's only words, you know, that the reality has yet to start happening. And, uh, and then in verse 17, he goes on and he starts talking about the genuine. 
He says, right, okay, that's, that's the carnal. So what can you expect to see in the life of someone who is growing in the Lord? All right. And in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above, you see that contrast there. We got the wisdom from below of, of the carnal Christian, and now we've got the wisdom from above, the understanding that is God-ordained, the outlook of someone who is, is growing in the Lord. And he says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. So that is what you're going to see in the life of the person who is growing in the Lord. All right. Um, you know, sort of that, that is what you're going to see in someone whose wisdom, whose insight is firmly focused on the Lord and the Word of God. So let's actually go through it. Pure. All right? Pure. The wisdom, their understanding, their general way of life is going to be firstly pure. Now, purity, unmixed. That's the idea. I mean, purity is very much tied in with holiness in the Bible language. And, and, and part of the idea of holiness is, is this not mixed, you know, sort of like separated from impurity. And it's sort of like uh, talking here that there's a, a certain freedom from ulterior motives and selfish personal gain. Now, obviously, we need to understand that no matter how far we've gone in the Lord, we are never free from this mixture. Obviously, we're never free from sin. But the point is, you can have someone who's kind of like what they're doing, like the ulterior motive and the personal gain is just like written all over it in neon signs. Can you see, I mean, that that is what it is about. Whereas, as you grow in the Lord, we can't ever claim to be completely pure from it. But the point is, it can be more that the, the motives are absolutely right and proper, but then the wrong stuff mixes in afterwards, as it were. Can you see the difference there? I'm not talking about getting to the point where there's never an ulterior motive in anything we do. But, you know, there is a point where, you know, like from doing the right thing from blatantly the wrong motives, as you grow in the Lord, you can end up doing the right thing from the right motives. But obviously the whole thing ends up, sin gets in there, but, but the basic, fundamentally, there's a purity there. So, you know, sort of that, that, that needs, you know, that that's something that we need to pray that the Lord will develop in us. So there's a, a purity there. I, you don't feel with this person that kind of, um, well, okay, they're, you know, they're relating to me purely because they want something out of it. You know, there's a real sense that there's a, a, they are giving. They are there. Can you see what I mean? That's, that's what we're talking about. Um, and it says peaceable. Peaceable. Uh, now, a peaceable person doesn't have any axes to grind. Um, you know, sort of like personal wars going on and accounts to settle with various people. I mean, you know, that's really what we saw earlier, you know, about the meekness of wisdom, you know, having no fight either with God or with man. And uh, one of the, the, the key things of, of sin, you can always tell when the sinful nature is around, because the sinful nature always grates 
off of other people. It, there's always something antagonistic about the sinful nature. Sin will always drive people apart. Whereas the new nature will always want to see people come closer together. The new nature will always want to see reconciliation. Now, reconciliation might not always be possible because obviously you've got to have all, you know, each party has got to want it. You know, now I mean, if one party won't, it's blown. But the point is the sinful nature, far from wanting dissension and, and you know, anything like that, the sinful nature wants to bring people together, even though sadly very often it can't. But the point is it's not antagonistic to people, you know, with, with, with scores to settle all over the place. Whereas with the carnal Christian, you'll find that very often that is true. And then next, this wisdom from above is uh, gentle, gentle. I define that having no desire to hurt people. Um, it's never the aim. Now, I mean, there are times, you know, sometimes where, you know, if we love each other, sometimes because we love each other, we, we say things to each other that might be a bit corrective and that might hurt. But the point is, they're not being said in order to hurt the person. That, that's the thing. Um, you know, th that is why I would say that if you enjoy correcting people, then that isn't the ministry God's given you yet. You know, can you see what I mean? Because for someone to enjoy correcting, why would there be enjoyment in it? The enjoyment is because there's glee at the fact that it's difficult for the person who's been corrected. Well, gentleness doesn't get any kicks out of that at all and will make it as easy as possible. That, that's the thing. No, no desire to hurt, um, you know, and, and, and if, if pain is caused through legitimate means, you know, say you do correct someone, and it's absolutely right that you do, if they are hurt, well, it's not that you compromise, but you're going to feel that pain with them. That's the point. You're, you'll be able to empathise with, with what they're feeling, so that, you know, sort of like you're a feeling person. That, that's the point. Never, never wanting to hurt people and always being there to do what is ever needed to bind them up and make them better if they are hurting a bit. That, that's the thing about gentle. And of course, isn't that the opposite from selfish ambition and, and bitter jealousy? You know, I mean, jealousy, ambition will tread on anyone wants to hurt people. Ah, oh, you know, no, that is the exact opposite to what the the mature, you know, sort of like believer is going to be like. And uh, th then it talks about open to reason. Um, that is so important. I, I mean, I've I found this helpful in in the past when when sometimes maybe I've had people, you know, coming at me with, "This is God's word for you, Beresford." All right, and. This is one of the tests that has been very important to me. Um, you know, because I, I found that, for instance, if someone is bringing God's word to you, all right, that, then if, it's, if, if, if they're genuine, you, you can question it quite safely, see. Um, whereas sometimes I've known with people, they've sort of like, you know, they've said, we think, you know, I think this is what God is saying to you. And maybe I've questioned it, or, or I, you know, I've even made noises. Okay, we'll have to pray about it. And immediately, 
they're offended that it hasn't been accepted just like that. And if you question them about it, they get humpy and they get insecure about it. And they're not open to reason. Can you see? That is tremendously important. Someone who you can't talk to, who you can't sit down and question them and challenge them without them flying up the wall or starting to be horrible to you. Well, you know, sort of someone like that, how can you really expect to be receiving God's word through them? It's daft, isn't it? And here, James is saying that that open to reason is a very important sign of developing maturity in the Lord. Because someone who's open to reason, it means they're persuaded by the truth. And if you've got someone who is persuaded by the truth, that that is what they're interested in, then obviously they are all the time open that they might be wrong. Do you see what I mean? So, you know, for instance, if I, you know, say, well, I think God might be saying this to you, all right? Now then, you might question it. Now, I don't mind you questioning it, because ultimately, you're the one who's got to find out what God's saying to you, and after all, I might be wrong anyway. You see, you know, that, that's why this, you know, brother, this is what, the, you know, God's told me to tell you. I mean, we, we thankfully don't have too much of that in this fellowship. You know, no one's got that hotline to God. But it is important to see this, um, you know, sort of open to reason. And someone like that is going to all the time be willing to explain. You know, you can ask them, well, why this? Why that? And they'll sit and quite happy they'll explain without getting crotchety, without getting angry, anything like that. Also, being open to reason means a fair-mindedness. Um, you know, sort of like someone who's prepared to listen to all sides before they make judgment. You know, so there won't be a kind of, oh, right, there's an argument going, or, you know, and as soon as possible diving in on one side or the other. Yeah, because, I mean, the point is that mature believer would rather there weren't any arguments going on. Can you see what I mean? But sometimes he is forced to take sides in an argument for the sake of the truth, but would rather that there wasn't any controversy going on anyway. So that open to reason is tremendously important. But believe you me, the sinful nature is not open to reason. doesn't like to be questioned. And, uh, you know, it's very important that we come to terms with that, you know, that, that we're quite open to being questioned and quite open to being called upon to explain ourselves. I don't mean, you know, sort of like, for instance, um, you know, sort of like every area of our lives, you know, that, that you're free to come up and ask me anything about anything in my life at any time. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that. But there are some Christians, and again, we've seen this, haven't we? who are going around doing the big I'm a disciple bit and this is God's word and so you try and question them about what they're saying and you know and, and then they hit the roof and and they're angry and suddenly Satan's attacking them through you because you've questioned them I mean that that is the exact opposite of what the new nature is all about the new nature is very much open to reason and uh, they, then you get full of mercy full of mercy, a brilliant test that for whether someone's growing in the Lord, uh, full of mercy, uh, you know, it means to take pity on people, um, you know, to actually try and, even though, yeah, even though they may well be wrong, to, to at least try and see it from their point of view, not to excuse them, but so that we don't become pitiless people. You see what I mean? You know, so, so say, you know, saying an extreme example that sort of someone is found to have been wrong in something, all right, and maybe they're corrected or whatever, but, but, but to do it with a bit of feeling, you know, or maybe, you know, sort of like you've 
you know, I mean, say you've done me wrong or something. Um, you know, well, am I just going to be demanding my pound of flesh and your your repentance, or am I going to think, well, okay, all right, they've done me wrong, but in them in them putting themselves right, I'm going to you know I'm going to crawl over broken glass if necessary to make it easier for them. You see that that kind of outlook is is tremendously important. Feeling sympathy with people and, and, and acting to meet their needs. That's that's all what being full of mercy is all about. And of course, that is exactly what God is about, full of mercy. You know, I mean, while we were enemies, while we were, you know, like consigned, as it were, to the lake of fire, uh, you know, sort of like rather rather than just leaving it there. I mean, what did God do? He, he had mercy on us. He took pity on us. He, he did something about our plight. Uh, he certainly didn't excuse us of our sins, but he took pity on us in our plight and died for us so we could be forgiven. And so that, that kind of attitude, full of mercy. And again, what a far cry from believers who are carnal, who have got all the talk <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, let's, let's make sure that, that we're not in, in any way people who, who are mercy-less, who are pity-less, because that is the exact opposite of what the Lord is like. And, and, and if, if his life is coming through us, then, then being someone who is merciful is, is, is going to, you know, to come through as well. So there's a real sign be between the carnal and, and the spiritual, or the worldly and the holy to use the language of, of, of James. And then he talks about good fruits. Well, obviously, there's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, blah, 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 Galatians 5. You can go through it all. Uh, then he talks about without uncertainty. Now, there, what he's talking about there is that a mature believer has a solid base in the truth of the Word of God. And they're not going to be all over the place. This is the point. Their yes will be yes. We'll see this later on in James. Their yes will be yes, their no will be no. But what they say is what they mean. They mean what they say and they say what they mean. You can rely on their word. Can you see what I mean? So the point is that they're not going to tell you one thing one day and then the next day they're telling you something different because they, they've changed their minds and they're all over the place. You know, again, another sign of, of maturity happening, you know, the, the new nature developing in somebody, a kind of a certainty, a, a solidity. You know where you are with those people. There's a consistency that's happening in them. And then he says there won't be any insincerity. And of course, insincerity is hypocrisy. You know, sort of like you won't get people who are, you know, like they're claiming one thing with their mouths, but their lives are something else. That, you know, that a sincere person to that extent, they're living what they say. You know, sort of like they're not insincere in the sense they're not trying to make out that that I'm, you know, that, that I'm doing this, this and this when they're not. That that's what sincerity is. You know, you can kind of trust trust their word. And then in verse 18 he says, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And, uh, you know, here he talks about a harvest of righteousness. And that is ultimately what we should, as a church, be producing. I mean, there's a sense in which, obviously, on the one hand, we're, we're spiritual combine harvesters. There's the, the harvest out there of the unsaved who are yet to come in. But in regards to our fellowship in following the Lord, then 
what we're supposed to be producing is a harvest of righteousness rather than a harvest of unrighteousness as in carnal Christians and um, you know so the point is that if, if, if we're growing in the Lord if the fruit of the Spirit is being developed in all our lives individually and communally then of course what you've got is, is, is a harvest of the very righteousness of God you, you have a group of people where, where, where the very purity and righteousness and holiness of the Lord is coming through yes contaminated by our sin all the time but nevertheless the life of Jesus being lived out amongst us and that is going to mean righteousness and uh, you know and, and, and here he talks about sown in peace by those who make peace and there you have it again this thing about peace and of course if someone is really following the Lord rather than just talking alright if it's true then one thing they're going to have in their lives is peace see because they're going to be right with God oh yeah they're going to be aware of all all the things still wrong with them yeah they're going to be aware of that but the point is they're living in daily confession of sin so they're right with God they have peace in their life they're not fighting God they're not fighting other people and because they have peace in their lives they will be able to bring other people into peace as well and one of the sure signs of you know sort of like the the carnal Christian who is just talk is that you'll find that they don't spread peace and when push comes to shove they'll do quite the opposite and uh, you know you'll find that you know sort of like you know dreadful thing that the Bible talks about when you get brothers turning brothers against brothers and the Bible hates that you know God hates that but when you've got someone growing in the Lord then all the time they are going to be spreading peace not discord I'm not now talking about yeah if you stand for the Word of God you might find people not liking it and going against you I'm not talking about that but the point is in personal relationships etc etc you have people who are spreading peace rather than discord all the time trying to bring people together rather than being the means of people flying apart and uh, you know so I mean if you know if if if, if the person like this notices that a and B are having a problem then they'll do whatever they can it might only be prayer but they'll do whatever they can to see reconciliation whereas the carnal Christian in certain combinations of certain people having a problem with each other they want to get in there and take sides you see because that divisiveness is still in their hearts as well and notice too that it talks about those who make peace you know that peace is made it's not kept it's active it's not passive Jesus didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers he said blessed are the peacemakers and in the sinful world you have gotta make peace it won't just happen you've got to make it you know I mean you know it's like cakes don't make themselves dinners don't make themselves I mean you know sort of like I think many people's lives would be a lot easier if they did but they don't and it in peace doesn't make itself you've got to go in there and you've got to make it it's something that's active not passive and so there you've got James you know sort of like basically saying look don't kid yourself the tongue is where it's going to tell what's in your heart is going to come out through your tongue of that you can be absolutely sure only God can tame the tongue 
So at least you can see what's coming out. Is it the old nature or the new nature? And then he goes on to talk about, you know, look, this is how you can really tell. Because all the way through, he's putting little practical tests. You know, sort of like, are you disciple or carnal? You know, sort of like, are you spiritual or worldly? And here's the test. And he says, you know, look, you know, the, the wisdom, the understanding that is just, you know, sort of like demonic, that's pure sinful nature is this. And he lists various things. Are we like that? Or then he lists the kind of things that the new nature is. Are we like that? And, and all the time, it's, it's sort of like, uh, I mean, that book that Claire's got, you know, that medical directory. So, you know, sort of like we, we will find out every week if we've got some strange cancer, don't we? You know, like a symptom comes up, and you rush upstairs, get the book, or what does it say? And it gives you the test. You know, you can read through. These are the symptoms. What am I suffering from? And so here, in this chapter, James has given right. Here's the symptoms of the carnal Christian life. Now, here are the symptoms of the spiritual Christian life, the, the truly going on with the Lord. Which one are you suffering from? That's basically what he's saying. But also, not just yourself, although you've got to do yourself first, but you need to know what other people are suffering from as well, carnal or spiritual. Remember, we're not talking about completely. We're not saying that you can only believe someone is growing in the Lord if they are completely everything we've been talking about. But the point is it's going to be growing. It, the graph is going to be going bit by bit in that direction. Now then, next time we go on to chapter 4, we end it there tonight, but I just want to just read the first verse of chapter 4, because he says, What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? And he said that directly after talking about making peace. And of course, the thing is, we're ending here at verse 18, the end of chapter 3, but this is a very bad chapter division, if you see what I mean. Really, it should be the same paragraph. So when we come back next time, all right, and move on to chapter 4, uh, we're actually going to be just picking up from where we've left on. It's not going to be like a fresh start. He's not changing subjects at all. It's very much in, in the same thing. So having this time ended up with him saying, look, this is how you can be at peace. Next time, uh, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, sort of like how he deals with the fact of Christians who most definitely aren't at peace, either in themselves or with each other and we're going to see how he deals with Christians who are virtually fighting World War III. And again, we've seen this amongst Christians, haven't we? So we'll move on, on to that next time. And uh, we really are going to see what I would call a kind of a general kicking doled out to believers in general. And, and, and there's some very tough stuff in it. Um, you know, you might be surprised even at some of the language and uh, you know but for like the soft option Christians and, and, and that you know James chapter 4 really isn't for them at all but having said that it's a tremendous chapter because remember whenever the Bible shows us that there might be something wrong beautiful thing is it's only doing that so things can be made right again so that we're blessed and everyone else is blessed. So we'll, we'll carry on next time in, in, in chapter 4, and then after that you can decide which was worth chapter 3 or chapter 4. <laughs> They're both pretty heavy. Okay, right, we'll, we'll finish there.